RocksDB is a storage engine based on the log-structured merge tree data structure. RocksDB was developed at Facebook to provide a tool for embedded databases. The code for RocksDB is a fork of LevelDB, an embedded database built by Google for the Chrome browser. Every database has a storage engine. The storage engine is the low-level data structure that manages the data in the database. RocksDB is widely used in database applications where a log-structured merge tree is preferable to a B-tree. These tend to be write-heavy workloads. In past shows, we have explored applications of RocksDB in our coverage of databases like TyDB, data-intensive applications like Smite, and data platforms like Rockset. In today's episode, Dhruva Bortokar and Igor Kanadi join for a deep dive into how RocksDB works. Dhruva was the original creator of RocksDB, and Igor is a former Facebook engineer who worked on RocksDB in its early days. Both Dhruva and Igor now work at Rockset. We talk about the log-structured merge tree in detail and discuss why an LSM has higher write throughput than storage engines based on a B-tree. And we also evaluate some of the use cases for RocksDB. This was a technical episode, but we cover the topic of RocksDB in a great amount of detail from high level to low level. I hope it's useful to anybody that is considering using RocksDB in an application. Igor and Druba, you guys are both engineers at Rockset. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So we did a show about Rockset and data engineering and some modern data infrastructure problems. I wanted to do another show that dove deeper into RocksDB, which is a lower-level infrastructure primitive that is a part of Rockset. It's a part of the company that you're building. So I'd like to go through some various aspects of RocksDB. At a high level, can you just give a little bit of history and how RocksDB got started? So RocksDB is an LSM engine. I'd said data storage engine, which means it's kind of the base part of any database management system. As far as the history is concerned, I think we started this project around 2011. That was a time when a lot of, I was at Facebook and Igor was at Facebook. Both of us were were Facebook engineers. We were looking at um, databases at Facebook, which were moving from disk subsystems to Flash. And in Flash uh, storage, random writes are not a good thing in general because it wears out the Flash. So we were looking for an LSM engine. And one of the nice, small, elegantly written LSM engines that I found was LevelDB. It was a project from Google. It was a great piece of code. It was very well understandable very quickly. The disadvantage of that piece was that it was mostly written for Chromium browsers. So we had to do a lot of things to, we we basically took the basic LSM engine from LevelDB and created RocksDB out of it. Then maybe the first year at Facebook, it got used uh, in maybe four or five use cases. 
I can describe those to you later, but those use cases were all on the server side and we realized that we needed an LSM engine that can power big server side databases. Talk a little bit more about why you needed a new type of database for server side applications because I mean we have a bunch of server side databases that have been around forever. We have Mongo MongoDB, MySQL. What was the the reason for needing a new database? At the time at Facebook, there was a lot of applications um, that wanted to have uh, basically their binaries running close to the data. So, for example, there was Newsfeed, there were some ads backends, uh, a lot of the ranking frameworks that really made decisions based on huge amounts of data and then didn't want to go over the network. And each of those teams built a separate engine, obviously for their own use case. And then when they improved their engine, only their application went faster. So I think when, when Druba and I were a Roxy project, the cool part that we achieved there was that now we had the common infrastructure where all of those applications that wanted to have data close to their binaries on the same host could use a common infrastructure like RocksDB. So when the team made some, let's say, uh, performance improvements or some usability improvements, all teams that were uh, based on that architecture benefited. Would you call this an embedded database? That's exactly right. So embedded database in terms of when you use RocksDB, there's no networking involved. It's just a library for you to store data on the same host that your application is running on. You talked about some applications there, news feed, some ads, uh, backends. These are applications that were novel at at Facebook. These were, you know, the social network unlocked some new types of applications. Can you describe why a new database was required for these kinds of applications that were perhaps closely tied to social networking? Yeah, absolutely. So the first use case I still remember is Facebook has something called the graph database, and they needed to build a huge secondary index on this graph database, which means that the graph database, let's say, is in MySQL, and then you need to build indexes on all the different columns of the table. And we used to run a project called Dragon, which was the first project that uses RocksDB inside Facebook. So it was the first use case, again, is to build a huge secondary index on the large graph database. This is sim- similar to what we are doing here at Rockset, but we can talk about that later. Uh, yet another use case at Facebook was spam detection. So RocksDB was used for building some of the core spam detection uh, software that Facebook was running at the time. And then I think the third use case was more about recommendations. So things like how you can find coefficients or like... Uh, similarity coefficients between two different Facebook users. So there is a big uh, process that runs which finds um, how close are you to any other person in your friend list. There's a coefficient that gets calculated and that was built using a RocksDB backend database. So these were like three different types of applications where RocksDB excels in. When I'm thinking about these applications, they sound very different than something like a server that hosts my user data or my login data or my password data. These systems that have to be much more consistent, perhaps less stringent and more stringent requirements on uh, what the data actually is and its availability. If you have something like Newsfeed, what my Newsfeed is could be many different things. What ad gets served to, served to me could be many different things. Is there something there about the fact that there is less strong consistency requirements? Or I don't know, tell me, tell me more about the, the themes between those applications. So one theme that we discovered was a so-called um, log Taylor architecture, where basically what you have is you have a stream of data coming in, for example, for newsfeed, stream of all events that are happening with your friends. And then 
you have the tailor for that log which applies those updates in real time and builds basically some kind of an index of that data. And you usually do that in a sharded way. Uh, for example, for newsfeed, I think they had um, you know a couple of obviously a couple of shards. And then you have an aggregator where that responds to newsfeed queries where it's a one single machine that talks to basically many different leaves that host that data that they tail from the log. And then when the aggregator, the request comes, then it sent, it uh, distributes the request to a bunch of different leaves that then do some calculations locally. For example, some ranking based on huge amounts of data. That's why it has to be sharded. They send top, let's say, 10 results to the aggregator that now has you know 10 times number of shards results and then picks the best 10 results to show to the user. So the cool part there is you have basically distributed query engine that can run on, very, on huge data sets that's updated in real time. So yeah, I think uh, just to add to Igor's comments, the RocksDB is very good in write heavy workload as well as a low latency read workload. So the workload for reads are mostly like point queries and short range scans. And these are very useful for these applications like Newsfeed that Igor mentioned, where a person needs quick latencies on a huge large data set. Mm -hmm. So take for example, if you have the ability to process as part of the query, a few gigabytes of data in a few milliseconds and give responses to the user. That is the kind of workload that RocksDB excels in. So that's the difference from MongoDB and other systems also as well. We've covered the applications uh, to some degree. Let's talk a little bit more about the lower level architecture. So as you said, RocksDB is built on a data structure called a log structured merge tree or an LSM tree. And this works by having different levels of storage that get compacted over time. So there's a layer of recent writes that sit in memory, and those database writes are sitting in memory. They get compacted into small files that are sorted, and then the small files can get compacted into larger sorted files, and you can have this hierarchy of larger and larger files that are sorted. You can tell me if that's if any of that's wrong, but describe the log-structured merge tree data structure in more detail. So you said it's exactly right. So what we do is we apply the writes are buffered into in-memory write buffer, which in the implementation that we use and LevelDB uses and some others is a skip list, although it doesn't have to be, it just has to be sorted. Once the skip list is full, you don't want to you know run out of memory, you flush the mem table into a file on disk. And then obviously af uh, after some time, your, those files accumulate, and then you do so-called compaction. Now, there are many different strategies for compaction, and originally there's a Cassandra compaction, uh, level DB compaction, and ROXD, basically, the cool part is we actually enable many different compactions. So uh, by default, there's a level DB, which what it means is there's files organized on levels. Um, so the once the mem table is flushed, it's flushed into level zero. And the level zero is the obviously the newest writes, the newest updates. And then over time, it gets pushed into level one using compaction level two and so on. So a compaction process in a leveled compaction processing is you take some files from, let's say, level three, some files from level four, merge them together, and the output gets written into level four. And now on the read side, what happens is on each of those levels, files are partitioned, so the key range is partitioned. So when, let's say, you want to key B, you know exactly for a particular level which file contains the key B. So then when you do a read, you for each level, you need to do only one read because you know exactly where that key can uh, reside. And then there's also cool stuff built on top of those files, which is called bloom filters, where if the if you can prove with the bloom filter that the key cannot be there possibly, then you can also avoid I.O. 
So yeah, just to add to Igor's comments, as far as compaction is concerned, I generally get questions of the type like, what is different? What is the compaction different in level uh, in RocksDB versus LevelDB and uh, Cassandra and other places? So what happens is that in, by default, the compaction strategy in RocksDB is level compaction, which means that the files that we store on disk, they're partitioned by key ranges. Whereas the default for HBase and Cassandra, there the compaction strategy is that file ranges are partitioned by time. The default strategy, you can always put a non-default one later. So RocksDB has the default one where files are partitioned by key ranges. But you also have a universal compaction style in RocksDB where you can say that I, I want actually to partition files by time ranges, not just by key ranges. So that's one of the basic differences between these two different or three different LSM engines that are out there. Different databases have different data structures that underlie the writes and the reads that are serving the queries that are hosting the data that is actually in the database. And I think it would be worth talking a little bit about LevelDB as an example of using the LSM data structure. So as you said, the, the background here, LevelDB came out of Google. This was an LSM-based database made for the Chrome browser. So it's, a, it's, it's like it, it's, a, it's a database that's in the Chrome browser that is using this LSM data structure that we just described. Can you explain why LevelDB, why the LSM data structure was useful for the Chrome browser? Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's one, one line of thinking is that how do you design a storage engine where you handle a lot of writes and a lot of random writes? So if you have traditionally storage engines have been using the B tree structure, where means, which means that when a write comes in, you go find the page on the storage engine where or the storage where the where the key is supposed to recite, read that page, then make modifications and write it back to that page. So now every page, so if you write 100 keys, it's likely that you probably modify 100 pages on the disk. Whereas when you come to in-memory data systems where all your data is in RAM, for example, you are very cognizant of say cache lines, uh, how, how your data is cached using the CPU caches, where if you update a little bit of the data in the CPU cache, you need to invalidate that, those CPU caches in the other CPUs in your multi-threaded machine. Or even if you look for SSDs, there also if you do random writes to a page, the way it works on an SSD is that it reads the page, makes a modification to the page, and then writes it to a new place in the page. So there's a lot of, so random writes cause a lot of trouble when you are running in pure in-memory data databases or on SSD-based databases. So this is why the LSM storage engine is popular. So LSM storage engine, what it does is that when a write comes in, it doesn't go write it to override the original place in the storage. It go, goes and writes this, is accumulates some writes for a little bit of time, and then bulk writes all those accumulated writes into a new place on the storage engine. So this is very compatible and works elegantly with flash and in-memory data, data, data storage engines. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that for the LSM design itself, the paper, the original paper was actually built, I think it came out in 1995 or 1996, but it wasn't... That's your first paper about the data structure. That's right. The first paper, I think Patrick O'Neill created this paper. It was just a paper. It wasn't really in vogue till flash storage became really popular. I think right. 2005 or 2006 is when I heard more about the LSM engine in Bigtable. Yeah. So Bigtable also uses the LSM engine. Uh, that is mostly on disk-based systems, though. 
but that is, LSM is good for disk-based systems if you have a lot of writes. Right. Because disks cannot do a lot of random writes again, right? So yeah, I think 2005 is when it became really started to become popular again. So yeah, LSM was kind of an obscure data structure in the mid '90s, and then it got popularized. But I think the what he talked about in that paper, if I uh, I think I read the abstract, and it was he was talking about this issue of the trade-offs between how you can do random writes versus sequential writes. I think can you talk about those terms in a little bit more detail? Random writes versus sequential writes. What does that actually mean? So let's see you're writing out 10 megabytes to a storage, right? And let's say you decide to write sequentially, whether on SSDs or on disks. That operation will be very fast. But let's say now you try to write 10 megabytes, but chunk it out into, let's say, um, kilobyte increments, randomly on the disk, or randomly on SSDs. On the disk, that'll take a very, very long time if you try to write on hard disks. On SSDs, it'll take a bit faster, but it will wear out the SSD more quickly because of what Juba said, where when you do a even a small write on an SSD, it actually does a bigger write because it explodes into a, you know page size chunks. So that way, both on hard disks, sequential writes are much faster because how they spin, and even on flash devices, sequential writes wear out the SSD less. And then in memory, it also makes sense. Zruba said, in, if you're talking about very uh, low latency environments, it makes sense because then your cache is more pure. You don't evaluate your cache lines that frequently. Mm-hmm. So in all scenarios, if you can avoid sequential, uh, sorry, if you can avoid random writes, especially small random writes, uh, the better. Then the trade-off we didn't talk about about LSM is that your reads are slower because now if you think about it, you have more files where your key could potentially reside, whereas on B-trees, you know exactly the page that you have to read. Uh, so there's, that's a trade-off, and the trade-off is much worse off on hard disks. That's why B-trees were so popular on hard disks. But on flash devices, most good flash devices have you know a lot of uh, random IOs that they can do on the read side, so it's not a, a big of a problem. Let's talk about a read and a write in a log-structured merge tree data structure. So again, you have these different levels. You have the end-memory level. You have the some smaller file levels near the top and some larger file levels near the bottom. Can you describe what happens during a write to this data system and a read from this data system? Sure. So on the write... Basically, what happens is you just append the write to your in-memory data structure skip list, and you're done. Obviously, you add it also to the write-ahead log just in case you lose your in-memory data structure so you can recover your state. But in most cases, this is very simple and very fast operation. And in the background, what happens is that write is propagated using a process called flush, uh, which takes this in-memory buffer and puts it on disk, and then also process of compaction that we talked about earlier, where you take a couple files, merge them together, and write them, write out the results and delete old files. So that's the write path. And then for the read path, there are two uh, different read paths. One is for range queries, another one is for point lookups. Point lookups are, are um, very well optimized because, as I said before, there's a bloom filter. So, but what, when you have a point lookup, first you go obviously to the in-memory buffer, because that's where, uh, you know, if the write happened recently, that, that is where the key resides. If you find it there, you're done. If you don't find it there, then you go into the uh, level zero, which is the newest writes after the in-memory write buffer. You look it up there. If you don't find it there, you go to level one, level two, level three. And then obviously this sounds like a lot of IOs, but with uh, Bloom filters, uh, most of those IOs are filtered out. For the range scans though, especially short range scans, Bloom filters, traditional Bloom filters don't work. 
So you actually have to go to all the files that could potentially contain this particular uh, key. So for example, rain scan means for a particular key, find me that key and all other keys in sorted order after that key. So that happens a lot when you do index scans in traditional databases and or where you just want to get uh, you know a bunch of results uh, from a, for a query. And what that happens is you basically have a marker in each file and in a mem table in, in memory write buffer. You find the marker, it's some kind of binary search uh, over your, your data set. And then you put all those markers in a heap to find the least, the smallest marker. Then you start from there. Once you advance that one, you know, you just advance them all as you go along. And that's how, you know, ROXD provides a sorted view of the data that is a very important building block for building databases. So, yeah, I'd like to add one more thing there. So for short range scans, one of the things that we did when we were indexing the Facebook graph database was that we built something called prefix blooms in RocksDB. So this was a new concept. Uh, so in the Facebook database, what happens is that those short range scans mostly happen within a specific user ID or within a specific short period of time, those scans that happen in the database. And like uh, Igor said, if we had a bloom for every key in the database, then it doesn't help short range scans. So what we did was that we created this concept called a prefix bloom, which means that you can have a bloom on a prefix of the keys. So if your key is very large, but the first portions of your key is the user ID, then you could have a prefix, then you can have a bloom on the prefix of the key. So when a range scan comes with a certain prefix, you can actually avoid reading the files which don't ha even have that prefix. So that helped in some of the short range scans for querying the inverted index on the social graph. There's a data structure here that uh, Igor mentioned called a bloom filter. So if I recall, a bloom filter is that you can give it a key and it can, it'll can it tell you if the key might be in a data set? Is that what it does? Yeah, so, given a key, so you can have a configurable number of bits for every bloom that we create for every key. So what happens is that when a query comes in, if we have to look into a file to see if this key is in the file, we first look at the bloom. If the bloom says the file is not in, this key is not in the file, then we can avoid reading the file right. completely. So that part is 100% accurate, but sometimes the bloom might say that no, the key is in this file. So we go look into the file, but maybe the key is not there. So right. then the key then that then that read was kind of wasted. Right. But it's a way basically for you to reduce the number of reads that you have to do to find your data. Yes, and so if I understand this data structure is useful here because you've got these different levels which it's it's referring to the same data set, but they have different ages, basically. The, the mempool at the top is the most up-to-date age, but it's not in order. And then some of them, are, well, some of them, they get cleared out of the mempool, and then they get stored in the, the levels beyond that. And then at each of those levels, you look at a bloom filter first and say, okay, should I look in the actual file here? If not, you can proceed to a lower level and look at these increasingly compacted data sets so that you can eventually find the the level of compaction at which your key is uh, is actually going to be found. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I think like the LSM uh, paper, I think, um, becomes very practical only in the presence of blooms. So although the LSM paper came out in 1996, it's the combination of that technology along with the fact that there is something called these bloom filters. Bloom filters came out of the network world, I think. The first thing was about like some Huffman encoding, that kind of network research. 
But then when it got applied to the LSM engine, this became a, this became a really useful technology where LSM you can combine with bloom filters. Otherwise, every read in LSM would be like very high cost because you'd have to look at every file. So I just wanted to make the point that LSM engines became really practical only mm-hmm. in the existence of bloom filters. Mm-hmm. And just to emphasize what we're even talking about here, this RocksDB or LevelDB, these LSM-based structures, the different levels, I think there's an analogy to be drawn between what is commonly called a, a cache hierarchy. Is that Would you say that's, that's accurate? Is that a good analogy? A cache hierarchy versus uh, these levels in a LevelDB or RocksDB? Sure. Yeah, I mean, the data inside the RocksDB storage engine, they're kind of organized in the form of levels. Mm -hmm. So it's not really caching, but it is kind of persistent, but the same key could exist in different files inside the RocksDB storage engine. Mm. So let's say you write a key, and after 10 minutes, you write the same key again. So now the, the both the versions of the key might exist in the storage engine. Right. But when you read, you always find the latest one. So the right. data, the, the, the RocksDB code ensures that it always returns you the latest version of the data. Right. So yeah, you can think about it as maybe some kind of caching or duplicate data internally, but that's what is, that's how the storage engine is configured. I think the difference between caching and, and, and RocksDB levels or level DB levels is that in caching you want you know hotter keys or keys that you just recently accessed are in memory versus in rocks DB levels keys that you recently r- written are in a higher level mm-hmm. so we do have so that's in leveled structure but we do have on top of level structure we have a block cache which then also does caching based on the keys you read most recently mm-hmm. so the, but there is a the most recent writes are going to be faster to access than a write that happened a long time ago so this again depends on your compaction strategy like mm-hmm. i mentioned so if your keys are partitioned by if your data is partitioned by key ranges then mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter whether you wrote the data a long time back or recently mm-hmm. whereas if you partition your keys by time ranges, then it will be a different answer for that question. And also in the presence of blooms, I think some of these are elevated because blooms kind of reduce 99% of your reads. Mm. So again, the, 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 the performance is different on different hardware. So the focus of RocksDB project was always to keep, the focus was entirely on performance. Uh, it is a very lightweight C++ library, and the focus has always been on performance, and it is very pluggable, which means that you can run it on different hardware systems by giving different configurations. You'd have there like probably 100 tunables that you can tune, which gets you extra, which lets you extract the last mileage out of the hardware, and your hardware might be very different from the hardware I run it on. I know people run RocksDB on disks as well as SSDs as well as in-memory systems. Anything else on performance? I'm trying to think. So, the, so the, for, as far as the performance is concerned, giving performance on different hardware is very difficult, right, in general, because you have to tune it differently. So we have made the RocksDB engine very pluggable, which means that you can have your own mem table formats. You can have your own SSD file formats. You can plug in your own code. Uh, you can have what other configurables are there? <laughs> many, many others. <laughs> yeah, there are many, many other configurable pieces where you can plug in your own code. Oh, there's another interesting thing are things like compaction filters. So there is a use case uh, in the early days at Facebook where we wanted to delete data after 30 days or after 15 days. So you can specify a TTL or time to live for every piece of data. And typically other storage engines, you'd have to write some application code to scan your database and delete records which are older than 30 days. But in RocksDB, there is this feature called compaction filter. So you can set this in the RocksDB storage engine. 
And so when RocksDB compacts data in the background, it automatically deletes data that is 15 days old. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So you don't have to write too much application code. You just plug in things that are pluggable in RocksDB and configure it correctly. Uh, there's another thing in RocksDB called the merge operator. Merge operator is used to create kind of virtual. So RocksDB is a key value store. But suppose you want to give the abstraction of a list, uh, like a name of a list with a values list of values inside the list, like a Redis list, for example. So it's easy to build using RocksDB because you can use merge operators. So every write, you don't have to read the list and append it to it and then write it back. You just write it to another place in RocksDB and you configure something in RocksDB is telling him that, hey, these are actually part of the same list. Mm. And the application can specify some code to be run as part of the merge operation to merge these things in the background and create the list. Ah. So it avoids random writes again. Like even other example I remember was accounting service. So accounting service needs to read the whole value from the storage engine, add one to it and run, write it back. But this one, this one is very cheap to do in RocksDB by using something called the merge filters, mm. where the only thing that the uh, application writes is plus one, plus one, plus one, plus one uh, kind of things into the storage engine. And the storage engine, when you do a read, it automatically knows how to get all those plus ones and make it, let's say you added five of those, it gives you result five. Mm -hmm. So it gives you the list abstraction or the counter abstraction and by avoiding a lot of read modify writes. So that's important because at its core, RocksDB is just a key value store, which would just be like, okay, the only thing I can do with that is like retrieve one value associated with one key, right, exactly. which is like not very useful if I want to like get me all the users in this database. Yeah, absolutely. Now take for example, suppose you have a service which is counting the number of clicks that somebody is doing, yeah, right? So yeah. let's say you are a user. I want to count how many times you clicked on this object, mm -hmm. right? So one option would be to read the old value from the storage engine, add one to it, and then write it back, saying you have clicked it one more time, one more time. So every operation is a read and then a write. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you use the RocksDB merge operation, your application is not going to do a read modify write. It is going to just say, add one more to that counter, add one more to that counter. And then when your application reads the value of the counter, it magically gets the value summed up from all the plus ones that you have been putting to the database. Mm -hmm. So this helps avoiding a lot of read requests on a database. Mm -hmm. It's also good for essentially things like events. So here I'm talking about these events, right? You are clicking on some pieces of your app or your device and events are getting generated and somebody's counting the number of events. So using merge operator, you can actually make these event countings quite less resource, fewer resource can do more things compared yeah. to other storage engines. So we talked about basically the the core of the database engine or the uh, storage engine, which is just this is a really good system for storing key value pairs. And then you just talked about some of the things that were written on top of that, written in addition to that core storage engine, where you have things like being able to, to do aggregations easily or define an abstraction of a list more easily at a low level so that the higher level lists can can use those low level abstractions. Uh, abstractions. When we're talking about the other tunability aspects, because you, you mentioned some other tunability aspects, are we mostly tuning the compaction policies, which are basically uh, equivalent to tuning like the latency of our reads and writes? Or are we? is there also tunable consistency? Or are the reads always going to be consistent in RocksDB? So RocksDB offers MVCC consistency by default. Multi-version concurrency control. Correct. That's correct. So what it offers you to do is to create a snapshot, for example, at some point in time, and then execute all reads you want from that snapshot. 
whether range scans or, or point lookups. And any new writes that happen will not obviously affect the particular snapshot. And that is true for also when you create an iterator. Iterator is an interface you use to do range scans. Iterator is also executed on a consist consistent view of the data. And that, that is uh, done by basically every single write to RocksDB has a sequence number, increasing the se increasing sequence number. And then when you create a snapshot, you just remember, okay, what is my uh, sequence number? And when you do a read, you just ignore any uh, writes that happened that are past uh, the sequence numbers you have. And then obviously in the comp during compaction, you have to know which uh, snapshots are live so you don't remove the, you know, even though a key might be old, there might be a new update. If there's a snapshot between those two keys, you don't want to remove the old key. Otherwise, uh, you will lose MVCC guarantees. And then on top of MVCC, what RocksDB also provides as a layer on top, uh, non, not in the core engine, is uh, optimistic transaction utility and pessimistic transaction utilities. And I think my Rocks project, which is MySQL built on top of uh, RocksDB storage engine, uses that those uh, utilities to provide a different cons consistency level for, uh, for MySQL. So yeah, uh, just to carry on that thought, the, so RocksDB is part of the MySQL ecosystem now because people can use MyRocks. So basically you use an SQL interface to a RocksDB storage engine inside it. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can also use, there's also a project called MongoRocks where you could run MongoDB on the RocksDB backend. Earlier, Igor was one of the creators of that project. Oh, wow. MongoRocks. And then recently you might have also have heard about the Roxandra project, which means that Cassandra, you can run a distributed version of Cassandra uh, okay. software with RocksDB as the backend. And uh, I think the Facebook guys have, the, the engineering team has produced some benchmark results on how better Roxandra is compared to really? the standard storage. Um, again, a lot of these RocksDB code is uh, being powered by a great team at Facebook. Uh, there are probably five or six, seven, eight great developers. We work closely with them. We used to be part of the team earlier. Now we are not, but we still work closely with them. And uh, there's been a lot of contributions from the open source community. So the community is also pretty strong. There are a lot of contributions and the, your pull requests get committed to RocksDB code quite quickly. Uh, it doesn't get stuck in no man's land for long periods of time. <laughs> Okay, well, one more question on the core discussion around LSM storage engines and RocksDB in particular, especially given that MyRocks represents a different storage engine from MySQL, begs the question, what are the other storage engines for these kind or or you you know you talked about Mongo or Mongo Rocks or whatever it's called. You know, Mongo, the typical storage engine I believe that it's use, using is Wired Tiger. I don't know what the typical MySQL storage engine is, but it's not RocksDB. So how do these different storage engines trade off from one another? And what makes RocksDB a desirable choice for using a, as a storage engine that's underlying MySQL or MongoDB? And by the way, for people listening who are a little confused... This is the, the underlying storage engine means this is just going to change a certain latency or perhaps consistency, but your interface into the database is going to be the same. You're still making the same kind of Mongo queries, same kind of SQL queries. So let me tell a story about uh, MyRox, which yeah. is a project out of Facebook. Right. So Facebook used to use MySQL with InnoDB, which is a B-tree-based uh, storage engine. And what they found is on InnoDB, they had a lot of random writes. Let's say they configured a thing, you know, they with four kilobyte pages, and then they have a hundred byte write. So this hundred byte write to four kilobyte pages means now for a hundred byte write, you have to write out four kilobytes. 
that is write amplification, so how much more data you have to write of thing 40. And they saw that for BCHIC-based architectures, their write rate was much, much, much higher than for LSM. Uh, and then the second part was uh, compression in ODB was also not as good as compression in ROGSDB. And ROGSDB has this unfair advantage of when you write the file, you never change it. And you, you write it in one big shot. So you can do a lot of cool compression optimizations on the whole, you know, 64 megabytes or 128 megabytes that you write out. So your compression can be much, much more tighter. So th those two aspects of it, less write amplification, so less writing out to flash, less wearing out of the flash device, and better compression was the motivation for Project Myrox. And the results were, to me, very surprising, where even very early on in the project, it was shown that I think Myrox has, uses only 50% of the space of MySQL in ODB. And then I think write amplification was shown to be 10 times better with Myrox. And obviously, you know, when the teams at Facebook saw those gains, those were incredible uh, cost savings for the infrastructure side. And then they invested a lot of resources in, into making that happen, both on the RocksDB side, but even more on the actual MyRox side in terms of combining the two and, you know, deploying it uh, to production. There's many, many very smart people working on that project. Drupa, anything you want to add? I think my takeaway from that MyRox project that became quite successful at Facebook was that People wanted to use the feature and the performance of RocksDB, but they needed an SQL interface because that's an interface that is quite useful to for an application developer to write stuff in instead of writing to a very custom API. So the two things in my mind was they wanted to leverage the power of the performance features and they wanted to use SQL or SQL-ish kind of language to be able to operate on it. And then the third one obviously was that uh, the MySQL database at Facebook is distributed in nature. So they wanted a distributed system to be able to store a lot of data. Uh, so these three things in my mind is what, what that system kind of shows the power of the system. And as a side note, that is the kind of the same system that we are building here at Rockset. So at Rockset, we have an SQL interface to a backend RocksDB databases. And so you can run SQL on, on large amounts of data which is stored in RocksDB. And then also at Rockset, we have a hosted service, which means that you don't really need to care about loading the library, compiling the library, installing it on your machine. It's installed for you. You can just run it using a known language that people are quite familiar with. Okay. Uh, I think we've given people quite a detailed introduction to RocksDB, and I'd like to now talk about running it in the cloud. So you guys are here at Rockset, and Rockset is is building a, a data platform that we've talked about in a previous episode with, with Vincut. But when we talk more abstractly about this RocksDB, getting RocksDB running in the cloud, rather whether we are uh, building a MySQL database on top of RocksDB or building Mongo on top of RocksDB or building whatever we want on top of RocksDB, there are things that we need to keep in mind. So when you take RocksDB and build a system around it in the cloud, what are the requirements? So the first requirement was that uh, Rocksd if you store your data in RocksDB, the data gets stored on the storage system that you configure. It could be an SSD, it could be a disk device. But then if that machine dies or, you, or the machine goes uh, bad and you cannot access the disk anymore, then you kind of lose your data. So what it means is that if for any kind of hardware faults, you might lose your data. 
in the cloud, the, the, the constraints that we work with are that you need the ability to spin up new machines when, when there's more work, and you need to be able to spin down and give, down, give up all your machines when there's no work to be done, right? That's kind of an ideal hardware elastic system that you can build on the cloud. So if you want to run RocksDB on that system, if you give up your machine, you lose all your data because your SSDs and storage systems are gone. So we invented this project called RocksDB Cloud. It's an open source project. Again, you can look it up in GitHub. GitHub, it's called RocksDB Cloud. So what it does, it basically gives a durable layer to the RocksDB storage engine. So it has the same API as RocksDB, but then when you shut down your machine, uh, your data is actually automatically back, backed up into cloud storage, which means it could be S3, it could be Azure storage, it could be Google cloud storage. Um, and then when you spin up a new machine at a different point in time, you can point him back to the cloud storage and say, hey, get me my database back. And then your RocksDB database appears as if it's a normal uh, RocksDB database. There, we have designed it in such a way that although the durability is on the RocksDB, the durability is on cloud storage, the performance impact is negligible for reads uh, just because of some configurations that we have. And then for the writes, those anyway happen asynchronously in the background. So they automatically, the SSD files automatically get flushed to the cloud storage. And that's how you get durability for RocksDB. So this is the RocksDB cloud project. Did I miss anything in explaining the no. other features? So as you're pointing out here, RocksDB itself is a single node abstraction. It's This is not something that has fault tolerance built in. If you're building a database, you want some failover. And there are different options for how you can configure that failover. RocksDB Cloud presents a failover system, uh, a durability system that is uh, kind of conscious of cloud abstractions. It's it's not like uh, you know something where you have to take into account like two phase commit or three phase commit or something. It's like you're taking advantage of cloud abstractions like Amazon S3. That's correct. That's correct. So one one cool piece of you can think of it as basically continuous backup. Right. Every time your file gets created on disk, it's also in the background put onto the cloud. And then if you have continuous backup that's almost up to date, obviously without the in-memory part, you can also spin up more machines on the same data set. So let's say you have one RocksDB database that is getting writes and, and you're getting continuous backup to S3, to the cloud storage. At the same time, you can say, okay, I want my second, third replica pulled out from this, uh, let's say, checkpointed uh, state because I need to answer more queries. I need more throughput at the, that particular point of time. And then the second machine gets up, pulls the data from, from the cloud, and now it can uh, execute queries on, on the, on the basically on the copy of the checkpointed state. The other alternative of um, failover uh, and of this kind of architecture is replication, where you have two nodes, and then first node is a master, it kind of receives writes and then uh, sends writes to the to the sec secondary. But then what happens is if your secondary goes away and it comes back up, there's a lot of things you have to kind of catch up on. And in our system, there's a checkpoint in S3, you just have to pull it, pull it all in. There's no, basically, instead of tailing the log, like you do in replication, you just get the state from S3. Mm -hmm. So in the cloud, stuff fails all the time. Nodes die. When you're trying to get RocksDB to run in spite of these Byzantine cloud failures that can occur, you need to have failover strategies. Can you can you describe some of the common failures that can occur in the cloud and the recovery strategy for RocksDB Cloud? Sure, yeah, uh, absolutely. So 
some of them are failures, but more of them is what we call cloud native architecture. So what the cloud native architecture entails is that we want the ability for a backend system to use more resources when there is work to do and then give up resources when there's no work to be done. You see what I'm saying? So like take for example, you are running your system on four machines and now there are no more requests or no more writes. You might want to shrink it to one machine because there's not much work to be done. This is what I mean by more than machines failing. It's more like giving up machines when you don't need to. You voluntarily give up machines. So this is not true on an uh, on a non-cloud en environment because in a non-cloud environment where you buy 100 machines, your goal is to use those 100 machines as effectively as possible, right? So RocksDB Cloud is very cloud native in the sense uh, like, take for example, if you build a distributed data processing system on RocksDB Cloud, if there's more work to be done, then there'll be more instances of RocksDB Cloud that you spin up uh, because the data is on the cloud storage. And we have these features called zero copy clones that each of our nodes can make. And then when there is no work to be done, we can shut down that machine and give it up without losing all the data because the data is still in the cloud, which means it is either in Azure or in S3 storage. So this is what I mean by saying cloud native architecture. Now, if you compare it with other database systems, like take for example, if you compare it to MongoDB or Elasticsearch or even Hadoop, uh, so there the strategy is more like replication. So if you have a piece of data, replicate it three ways so that you can handle hardware failures. So for RocksDB Cloud and at Rockset, we don't do replication for, for giving you durability of data. We do replication only if there is a requirement to serve your queries for performance reasons. But if there is not much queries, then we store the data in S3 and there's no need for us to make three-way replication. So we are anywhere. So think about the cost effectiveness of the system, right? If you compare it with Hadoop or Elasticsearch or MongoDB, there are three replicas of live data. Whereas in RocksDB Cloud and Rockset, we have only one replica if nobody's using that database. So we're already like two or three times more cost effective for that same workload. This is what we internally refer to as a cloud native architecture for data processing engines. Okay. I'd like to get into Rockset in the remaining time, uh, the company that you guys are building. Can you give me your perspective on the company and how it got started? Because so I know you were both at Facebook and you were working on RocksDB, and then something happened, things happened. You got traction with this project, project, and you had ideas for products. And then you know, next thing you know, you're you're running a company. Can you describe what happened in between that the point at which you started RocksDB and and what made you want to start a company around it? Yeah, that's a good question. So I have been working on the RocksDB project for a while at Facebook before I left. And what I saw was that the RocksDB project was successful because the project tried to leverage a new piece of hardware called a flash devices. So there were very few other data storage engines which was leveraging the power of the SSDs uh, to give better performance for storage engines. But then, like maybe in the last two or three years, I see this trend where a lot of data processing software is moving to the cloud. And in my mind, the cloud is a different hardware um, design where if you build software only that runs only on the cloud, you are probably five to 10x better and give better uh, features to an application because you're built only for the cloud. So my focus at that time was saying that how can we build a software infrastructure for data processing on the cloud that is very disruptive to existing pieces of um, software because it's not 
not a port of existing software to the cloud. It's software that we build natively for the cloud, which is what I meant by the cloud native design, where hardware elasticity is one of the core components of the system and the ability that the cloud has so much different pieces of hardware. So at that time, we thought that, hey, this is a great project to be done because I think we can add a lot of value to existing people who use data. Uh, because if they move to the cloud, the Rockset storage engine or the Rockset processing engine, they would be able to do stuff that they cannot really do now using other systems. So that was our motivation, saying that, hey, we can build something that adds a lot of value to a lot of backend applications because the amount of data is growing and there wasn't a great way to process all this data in the cloud at a cost-effective way. Uh, this is very similar to when Hadoop started because I was also one of the founding engineers of the Hadoop file system. And at that time, the Hadoop file system was the only system which could store petabytes of data. There was no other system which could store petabytes of data. And now at Rockset, it feels like if we build this cloud-native architecture, it will be one of the software powerhouses which can do things, which can allow a customer to do something that they cannot really do with other systems. So that's kind of the mission for our, or the journey for our company. So things like what? What would you like to enable that people can't do today? Yeah, take for example, if you're trying to gather insights into your data, like take for example, the thing that I keep playing in my mind is like, how can you have a query which can process maybe 60 gigabytes of data in 60 milliseconds? And no other systems can do this right now, but because we built Rockset only on the cloud, we can spin up enough hardware when the queries come in, we can provision you to be able to give that horsepower and so when you have these horsepower you can create a lot of new applications most of these are applications that need to find insights like take for example you I think Venkar mentioned this to you earlier is that take for example you walk to a car dealership and if they can show you the most relevant cars that are that you are interested in buying that will be tremendous value to you as well as the dealership who is going to be using that software right now they can't really do it because they have a lot of data but it takes a lot of time for them to process it and give you and you might walk in suddenly into the dealership they don't know that right. you are going to be there on that particular day right so those are the kind of apps we want to enable right do you want to add any examples of any other apps even like things like take for example your food delivery system right now yeah. you might be using some of these popular food delivery systems yeah there are certain apps, software that they use to figure out what is the best route for the, the bike rider to go and deliver food to right, your house. Right. So if you get your food much faster than what you, uh, more efficiently or much faster than what you're currently getting, that needs to process a lot of data in real time and give you recommendations right then and there. Yep. So it can impact you in many different ways. Um, so this is this well, is. What does that have to do with RocksDB though? That sounds like it's just like I mean, if you wire together better memory in-memory systems. And... No, I think there are two different things. One is that how can you build cloud-native systems? Let me give a simple example. It's an hypothetical example. Okay. Let's say there is a food delivery system that delivers food to your house, right? Yeah. There is a route that the that the person is going to take. Now, you are not a person who is regular ordering your food regularly, right? So suddenly one customer comes in and says, I need to order food, give it to me as quickly as possible. Yes. So now the delivery company needs to be in real time, find out what is the best route to take to your house. Is it going to be this road or is it going to be that road today? So you cannot pre-calculate these things. You see what I'm saying? Because there might be some construction going on. Totally. The traffic light is broken over there. So yes. we can get sensors. Yeah. So these things means that you might want to do a lot of work when there's a request. And then when there's no work to be done, you need to cut down your costs. Right. So this is what I meant by cloud-native architecture. So Serverless. Serverless and <laughs> cloud-native. Exactly, yeah. Which scale down. down. 
Yeah, so none of the existing data processing systems do scale down well. They all do scale up. But for Rockset, we try to make sure that we can do both. Mm -hmm. So take, for example, this example that I gave you. If you want to do this on an on-prem system, let's say you need 60 machines, 24 by 7, right? Because, but again, your demand might not happen all throughout the day. Yeah. Whereas if you do it in Rockset, it's possible that when a periods of high demand, we use 100 machines. But when there's not much demand, we probably use only one machine. Right. So that's how you save your cost and you make this cost effective to be able to do it. You cannot really mm -hmm. do it on a non-serverless and on-prem system. Mm -hmm. So cloud elasticity is what powers uh, Rockset, but there's also a lot of stuff built on top of RocksDB Cloud. So what we provide users is, and I think Venka talked a little bit about that in the previous episode, is you can ingest any kind of data. The way we enable that is we built new SQL engine, distributed SQL engine, that actually doesn't rely on the schema of the data. So that was a challenging project. It took us a couple months or even a year to get there. But basically, we store data in Rock, RocksDB, RocksDB Cloud. We index it in many different ways using in the inverted index and columnar index. And then when the query comes, most of the traditional query optimizers and query execution engines actually have schema as the first level primitive. So if you say, let's say, foo equals a string and foo is an integer, it says error. Foo is a, you know, zero results. We cannot do such a thing. So we had to build a new query engine that doesn't rely on the schema. So if you say foo equals, you know, five and foo is a string, it still tries to get it. It still uh, executes the, the query and only when it gets to RocksDB and says, hey, I need this uh, particular document for which foo is equal to five. Then it says, okay, no, all, all my foos are string. There is no such a document. Or maybe one foo is an integer even though all others are strings, so it finds that that foo. So we build that distributed query engine, and what it allows people to do is just load data into Rockset in whatever format it's in. We kind of adapt to the schema, and then the query engine doesn't care about the schema. So you can run any kind of SQL command, and it runs uh, even though there's might there might be a new new field uh, in the let's say there's a new document coming with a field that uh, the system hasn't seen before. A couple milliseconds later, you can already query for that field. There's no schema update command or, or like alter table add call. Uh, things in, in that. So that what that allows you know our customers to do is just extreme simplicity. There's no schema to configure, there's no indexes to build, and as Juba said, there's no service to manage. Mm -hmm. Just give us the data and give us the queries and that's it. Mm -hmm. Where do you feel like you're at today relative to where you'd like to be in terms of what you can enable for the customers? Like are there any kinds of cost reductions or cloud abstractions that you're waiting for that will allow you to achieve what you want to? Or do you feel like Rockset today has really done something groundbreaking that, that certain data customers can't get anywhere else? Yeah, I can think about uh, one or two things. One of them is that Rockset makes it very easy for a customer to get a lot of these events, which are semi-structured. Like, like Igor said, some of them, sometimes the field is an integer, sometimes the field is a string. Right. The ease of use and the automatic indexing is one thing that stood out when I was talking to Vinka. It's just like the the process of ingesting the, all the data, no matter how it's formatted, and putting it in a way that's really easy to, to manipulate as a developer me thing as a developer just like uh, what's my appetite like that sounds great it's uh, the fact that i can you know work with that stuff so easily is basically cutting down on data cleaning yeah. and everybody hates data cleaning and by the way you can do that because by taking advantage of the decreasing costs of the cloud exactly yeah we leverage the cost efficiency of the cloud which is why we can do these things now we also use rocks to be quite efficiently so that we can compete with other storage engines or we can be much more cost effective compared to other storage engines 
I think for Roxet, the, the roadmap is quite busy. Obviously, we are <laughs> not even close to our, what our vision wants us to enable. So elasticity works well today, but we are not yet at the point where, like, you know, we can execute huge, huge number of big queries on, on, um, on like, say, petabytes of data in, right. in, in short amount of time. So there's a lot of things on performance side that we want to work on. Our query engine is still new, even though it, it works pretty well so far, but there's so much more we can do there, uh, enabling more uh, SQL functionality. So uh, we are a fairly young company, I think two, two years now, two years and a couple months, and databases take a while to build and to actually achieve like crazy good performance. But I think leveraging some of the insights we have about RocksDB and about uh, Cloud Native and, and some cool things we built in the in the engine layer, the query engine layer, I think even today we can provide some interesting aspects to our customers, even though obviously there's a lot more work going on, a lot more ideas uh, jumping around that we want to leverage to make it even faster to query data, even faster to index data, and even cheaper for our customers by leveraging elasticity even more. You guys launched at a stealth, was it four months ago, three or four months ago? We launched November 1st, November 1st. 2018. How's the experience been since since then? Yeah, I think it has been a great experience. So what has happened is that before the launch, we were working with a few select set of larger size users. But after the launch, we have a long, long list of different size users. Some of these are small, some of these are big, some of them are heavyweight, some of them are different kind of workloads. So it has been really fun to look at all these different kind of workloads and see, hey, all of these could actually get value if they use Rockset. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, you know, talking to customers, seeing uh, wow in their faces when they when they see how, hey, I just loaded data. How can you query it immediately? Hey, I didn't have to configure anything. How does this even work? I think it's been tremendous and uh, very very fun journey so far. Some of the some of our users uh, were kind of um, overwhelmed with the pipelines that they used to run earlier. <laughs> uh, some of those some of our users are oh we have small set of data. Just let me try rock set. So all different kinds of. The pipeline, so you just replace their pipeline with just like in, ingest it? It is not a question of replacing all the pipelines, but a major chunk of the pipelines we can reduce because we index all the fields in your in your event database or in your data set. Some customers, I remember, actually I remember talking to one user who says that, hey, I am actually impressed that I don't have to use this command called create index right in a database anymore that right. command is gone for me i said yeah yeah that's good that is great yeah that seems to be like the one of the big trends that you guys have taken advantage of is the fact that if you just index everything take advantage of the lower cost of the cloud you can make databases a lot easier to work with yes cool well you guys this has been an awesome show i really enjoyed uh talking to you about the depths of RocksDB and the exciting applications that you're building on top of it with rockset thank, thank you for hosting us, us. okay thank you, thank you very much Wow!